Our Gospel reading today, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And all these things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. And please be seated today. Let's pray once again. God, our Father, we're so grateful for your holy word. We thank you that it is an infinite word. We thank you that we can explore in it the infinite mind of God. And so today we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit to guide and to instruct and to teach us. And we pray that the Spirit of God would take these living words and make them alive to us deep, deep in our hearts so that we might run the way of holiness as you desire us to. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. In Christ's name, amen. Well, Jesus gives us a story today. He gives us a story which is a warning about greed. How a preoccupation with things, how a preoccupation with stuff can not only lead to spiritual inertia, but can lead to ultimate and to eternal spiritual laws. It's very hard to read the Bible from cover to cover and not pick up from the Lord on the prominence of the threat of greed. It's the old sin of covetousness. It's the inordinate desire to accumulate possessions which the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 sums up as the sin of idolatry. And whether it's Achan in the Old Testament hankering after the wedge of gold or that Babylonian garment or whether it's Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament lying to the Holy Spirit in order to hoard things for themselves, the Bible warns us against the deadly consequences of greed. It's not something to be trifled with. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, it ought not even be named among you as the people of God. 
And it's not without reason that when J.R.R. Tolkien decided to conjure the perfect and expressive symbol for evil, he chose a piece of jewelry. He chose a ring, the object of greed, because Tolkien knew very well, as we read today, that it's the love of wealth that is the root of many evils. And when our Lord was betrayed by a friend, he was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. But even though Judas was the son of perdition, and we are those who cling to the hope of the gospel, we ought not be too quick to distance ourselves from the sin of that grand betrayer. For how easily it is for us to betray our Lord for stuff. How easily it is for us to put our trust in this sensible world rather than to walk by faith and to pitch our faith on that which we cannot see. How easily it is to drift from the word of the Lord and from the Lord of the word because we are so enamored by all these shiny silver commodities around us. And before we know it, we're not living for the kingdom at all, but we're living for stuff. Take care, Jesus says, and be on your guard against all manner of covetousness, for it is everywhere in this life. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And I want you to notice three things about this story today that Jesus tells. First of all, the man in the story is already rich. Verse 16, the land of a, of a what? Of a rich man produced plentifully. And he said to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He's a rich man already and his barns are already full. He doesn't need any more. And yet he's become infected with the way of thinking that enough is never enough. In fact, the category of enough doesn't even exist for this man. He only knows the category of more. He thinks he understands the category of enough. He thinks that just a bit more will be enough for him. He thinks that he will be able to be at rest. He thinks that he will be able to be satisfied, to be at peace, to eat, to drink, and to be merry. He thinks he will have enough, but notice that his concept of enough is always in the future. It doesn't exist now. Notice the future verse, uh, the future tense in <clears throat> verse 19. I will say to my soul, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample, you have enough goods laid up for yourselves. But the Lord says differently to us, and what he says to us here and now today is that enough is enough if enough is enough now. <laughs> enough is only enough when enough is enough now. The rich man already had enough. His barns are already full, but he was unable to enjoy it because the disease of covetousness which he was possessed by only serves one master. Covetousness only serves the master of more. Covetousness only knows one aim, one goal, one road to happiness, and it's always this, just a little bit 
more. And it's a twisted, and it's a torturous path to be on, always looking for just that little bit extra. I will be content if I can just get this. Once I round this corner, I'll be satisfied. All I need is a spouse, then I'll be happy. All I need is a house, and then I'll be content. All I need is a blouse, a mouse. I could go on and on. I probably couldn't go on and on, but you get the point. All I need is just this one more little thing just to get to that place. And then, Lord, I'll be content. But my brothers and sisters, enough is enough. And godliness with contentment is great gain. And you'll notice that the apostles' criteria for contentment is wonderfully and fairly modest. What does he say to be content? Having what? Having food in your mouths. <laughs> Having clothing on your backs. Let us be content. Let us say, that's enough, Lord. And if the Lord deigns to give you anything else, then you be grateful and thankful. But let that be your measure of contentment. First point. Secondly, I want you to notice that the man had mistaken the purpose of his wealth. The disease of greed had twisted his mind to conceive of wealth and riches as something that predominantly serves himself. Look at all the, the repetition of the first-person pronoun in this passage today. Look at how it asserts itself in, in the man's soliloquy. What shall I do, he says. I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and all my goods, and I will say to my soul, and here he goes to the second person pronoun, but you get the point, you have ample goods. It all surrounds himself. And you see, it never even occurs to him. It never even dawns upon him that the wealth that he has been given has been given to him for the sake of others. And this is where many of us get stuck and sorely tempted and tripped up when the devil whispers in our ears that our wealth, which in itself is not a bad thing, when the devil whispers in our ears, that it's primarily for us, for me, for my house. But the New Testament has a very strikingly different understanding of commodity. Look what it says. Look at what Paul says about what wealth is all about. Let us labor, he writes, when he's writing about the purpose of our gainful employment. Let us labor, he writes. Why? Doing honest work with our hands. Why? So that we may have what? something to share with anyone in need. That is the New Testament purpose of gainful employment. And it's not so that we can uh, ourselves be, uh, be uh, made impoverished and others made rich. That's not Paul's point here. He says that in Corinthians. He says that's not the point. I don't want you to be burdened by giving. But what I want here is a, is a quality. So what Paul is saying here, what the Bible says to us today, is that wealth comes to us as a means to provide for ourselves, but it also comes to us as a means to provide 
for others. Your wealth doesn't belong to you. Your wealth doesn't belong uniquely to you. In fact, your wealth doesn't belong to you at all. It's the Lord's, and he gives it to you to provide for yourself and so that you will provide for others. For a long time now, I've been an avid reader of C.S. Lewis. I go back to his books again and again, and I admire Lewis for his wit and for his cultured mind and his ability to express spiritual truths. I go back to him for his profound love for God, uh, and I love Lewis, but what has made his books far more valuable to me is the life that exists behind the pen. Luther was a, uh, sorry, Luther. Lewis was a don at Oxford, and for a teacher at Oxford, he made remarkably little money. But what he gave, or what he received from the university, he gave out far more abundantly than most of us would think was even prudent. Lewis gave, and he gave, and he gave, and he gave, because he was convinced of this firm conviction that what he received, a lot of it was never meant for him in the first place. Wealth, the Bible teaches, is only blessed by God when it does not remain in our own hands. When it stays here, it stagnates. It becomes corrupt. It becomes a deadly thing. When wealth stays here, it becomes the precious. It becomes my precious. And we become twisted and withered in a knot of anxious preoccupation about this thing that we won't let go of. He had under misunderstood the purpose of wealth. Thirdly, the man uh, today in our story, in the midst of all his wealth, had forgotten the eternal perspective. It's interesting to me that the story doesn't require us to think of this man as an atheist. He's not the fool of Psalm 53. We mentioned Psalm 53 today, the second verse. The first verse, of course, the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Well, that's not this man. But he is a man who has allowed wealth and stuff and things to make him forgetful of his maker. His daily thoughts are no longer centered on the eternity of his soul. He's not motivated by the relative brevity of life. And he certainly fails to constantly meditate upon the one who has absolute possession of his life and absolute control over the destiny of his life. Look at the way that Jesus coins the, the, uh, the term for the rich man's death. This night, we read, your soul is required of you. This night, your soul is required of you. It's as if God says to him, I lent your life to you for a brief span. I gave you the opportunity to steward these resources for a short moment, and now I require it back from you. Your life isn't your own. It belongs to me. But the pernicious quality of stuff of things, of wealth, is that it blinds us from the infinitely larger and bigger and more important reality of God. He was so busy with the lower P pleasures that he forgot all about the capital P pleasure of his maker. Over the holidays, I had the pleasure of reading a collection of sci-fi, classic science fiction stories, 
And uh, I'm a great fan of classic sci-fi. And this little uh, novel was a collection of short stories all orbiting the theme of Jupiter. I thought it was especially apropos because of the Juno spacecraft to be thinking about Jupiter. And uh, I was completely engrossed by this fiction over the past month. In one of the stories, a man approaches Jupiter for the very first time. And he enters a base on one of Jupiter's uh, moons. And uh, bending a corner, he climbs the base to a platform to a viewing deck. And he comes along his new colleague who's been there for a long time. And seeing Jupiter for the very first time, his reaction is perfect silence. He can't say anything. He's absolutely stunned. And for a long time, he doesn't even utter a syllable until he says this, I never imagined. And the colleague who'd been there for some time says, I know. At times, I'm afraid to look up. My brothers and sisters, we who live in the presence of such puny objects of the Rocky Mountains, we are surrounded by the infinite majesty of God in His grandeur, in His greatness, beckons our attention, it beckons our admiration, it beckons our deepest and humble devotion till we at times will say, I am afraid to look up because of the majesty of the Lord. And life today, my brothers, is about God. Life today, my sisters, is about God. Happiness is about God. Joy is about God. Satisfaction is about God. Humanity and creation is all about God. He is the end. He is the goal. He is the meaning. He is the way. He is the truth. And He is the life. He is all. And His presence and His reality should stagger us daily with astonished waves of awe and fear and delight. And the Lord says to us today, our lives are meant to be rich towards God. Our lives are made to be rich towards God because He is all. All of our giving is to be about God in this life. Our generosity is to be fueled by gratitude to God and our desire to be more like Him and to be nearer to Him. Everything we do is to be about God. And so Paul has the boldness to say to us, whether you eat and whether you drink or whatever you do, let it all be done to the glory of God. Let your life be absorbed in God. Be a life that is rich towards God, flowing, everything flowing constantly to God. That is the Lord's message to us today. And brothers and sisters, what God expects from you today is not 10% of what you own. What God expects from you and from me is everything. He asks for all of you. He asks for your pleasure. He asks for your leisure. He asks for your work. He asks for your rest. He asks for your gifts. He asks for everything. And if I could set up a banner for us today that would lead us into 2016, into a new school year, a new year of work, I would set up that banner, be rich towards God. Let us be a church that is rich towards God. My brothers and sisters, be rich in your pursuit of God. Be rich in your quest to know God. 
Be rich in loving God. Be rich in obeying God. Be rich in sacrificing everything to God. Be rich in delighting in God. As we come today to approach the table of the Lord, let's come with that attitude and desire that the psalmist or the hymnist had, and let's surrender ourselves to God anew. My brothers and sisters, would you surrender your hearts today to the Lord anew? Would you consecrate yourselves afresh today and say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee? Take my moments and take my days and let it all flow towards you in ceaseless praise. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.